Here we go, rejecting the screen, the Going ISO edition, as we do every week, the long-form interview with all sorts of folks who have touched the NBA in some sort of way. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast, out West is Adam Stanko, and 19 hours away is, or I should say that the time difference is 19 hours, is Matt Walsh, the CEO, managing partner of the New Zealand Breakers of the National Basketball League. An all-SEC selection, an SEC tournament MVP at Florida. At two games in the NBA with the Miami Heat before a brilliant career spanning about 10 years overseas. Matt, I want to start with high school. I went and looked up the Philadelphia Daily News all-decade team. And first team all-city was Eddie Griffin, Maurice Rice, Wayne Ellington, Gerald Henderson, Sean Singletary. You were on the second team with Kyle Lowry and others. Who should be taken off that first team to get you on that first team? Um, well, I've never heard about that list, so that's exciting. And I love that intro, man. I'm, I'm, always, I'm always happy to come on if this is the intro I'm going to get. Um, who can we take off that list? Uh, quite frankly, I think I'm probably lucky to be on the second list. So let's, let's not push our luck. Let's just keep me on those lists as long as possible. <laughs> And let's just let let me run, slide under the radar. Me and Kyle Lowry, anytime you're next to his name, it's a very good thing. I thought for sure you'd go with Sean Singletary since he went to Penn Charter. <laughs> hey, Sean was a big time player. He's still a friend of mine. Um, supremely talented, way more talented than me. I think I got everything I could have out of my uh, string bean body. So, like I said, I'm I'm thrilled to be on that list. Let's just uh, let's keep that quiet. I don't. I don't want anyone going. I don't want Ted Singletary going back and editing that, editing me out. Full disclosure for for those listening, um, Matt and I go way back. I used to cover Matt when he was a superstar at the high school level. Certainly was a superstar at the college level too. You know, we have history. We did a bunch of podcasts together in the past. But Matt, I remember one of the one of the coolest things was when you guys had a chance to play against St. Vincent St. Mary. What what are some of your fond memories and, and first impressions of, of playing against LeBron in high school? Man, um, yeah, so that was so exciting. I think we were ranked either three or four in the country, and they were ranked either five or six or two and four. It was the opening game of the season. It was so exciting. I mean, this was coming off the summer where LeBron had destroyed Lenny Cook at the ABCD camp. And if you're a basketball head, you'll know what I'm talking about. And he just, I think he got the, his first, uh, Sports Illustrated cover, and he just exploded onto the scene. So, to be quite honest with you, I'm a senior in high school. Uh, you know, I'm the best player in Philly. I'm thinking, man, this guy can't be that good. Like, the, you know, he just cannot be that good. We go into the game, and we're like, okay, we're going to make him shoot. He's really athletic. I think he had 17 points in the first quarter with five threes. And on the final play of the first quarter, he hit like a fadeaway, falling out of bounds, buzzer beater three. And I just remember being like, oh, man, like we we're in trouble. This is not this is not good. Um, and the thing I take away from it most was just he had so much hype and everyone talked about how good he was. And he was better. I just remember leaving and being like, wow. Like after the game, he said to me, he's like, great game, Matt. And you know, I always tell people, I'm like, you know, I had 28 points against LeBron James. And they're like, well, how many did he have? I'm like, well, he had like 38, 16, 11, and 10 or something. <laughs> but a- after the game, he said to me, he's like, Matt, I'm going to come visit you down in Florida as if he was taking you to visit. And I was like, man, get out of here. You know you're going straight to the NBA. And he laughed. And I saw him a number of years later in Vegas. Um, and it was cool. You know, I, I, the, the biggest thing for me was playing against the, 
greatest or second greatest player of all time. I held my own. I think there was a level of respect there. So that was pretty exciting. And then the other thing was we ended up losing the game by four or five points. And our point guard, Jeff Curtin, who's one of my best friends, had gotten in trouble at school and wasn't allowed to play in the game. So he played with our backup, a sophomore. And uh, I still give him a hard time about that. So I'm sure Jeff's going to listen. And I'm still mad at you about that, Jeff. Yeah, hell yeah. I'd still give, I'd still give him a hard time. What? Yeah, if, and, I mean, right. in fairness, Jeff, Jeff went on to play in the MLS for like 10 years. Better athlete than me, so... Um, but anyway, yeah, I'm so mad about him because I, w- I wanted to win that game. Yeah, I mean, you, who cares what else both of you have done? You could have said you beat LeBron in high school. So, uh, yeah. yeah what right. if, so if, if LeBron had come on a recruiting visit to Florida, what would the details of that recruiting visit have been? Well, I have to say that I was one of the guys that was certainly used to, to try to, you know, I, I was one of the hosts. I was one of the top hosts, I think, down there. And we certainly tried to show guys, show guys a good time. Um, you know, whether that was going out to the grog house or the swamp down there in Gainesville and, um, you know, getting into some hijinks. But I think that probably the details of what that looked like are best left unsaid. I mean, I'm so close with Coach Donovan and OKC and Jeremy Foley. So let's just say that I, I, I did a good job with green guys. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, all right. So some of those guys that you were recruiting, people may remember – obviously that the back-to-back national championships at Florida that that you could have been a part of and that you were a big part of because you got those guys rolling and did so much with them in in the early part of their career and of course I'm talking about Al Horford, Joakim Noah, Corey Brewer um and and you know Lee Humphrey and uh, Torian Green but but with that crew Matt that, that you had played with what did you see from those guys during their their freshman year that that sort of stood out to you you know, it wasn't the talent. I mean, that that ended up being clear, right? I mean, Joe Kim and Al and, you know, Corey's had an amazing career. Torian played a short time in the NBA. Those guys were supremely talented, but it was what they were about. Um, you know, they were 100% just about winning. They really cared about each other. Um, they loved being around each other. They And, you know, it was, there was no ego. It was just whatever you had to do to win the game. And I think back about being around those guys their freshman year, and I just feel so lucky to have been around them and experienced because I think I learned some life lessons from those guys and something that I try and, you know, pass on to my son and the, the players we have here in New Zealand because they were just about the right thing. They were not the most talented. I mean, as crazy as it sounds, I know they had four guys playing the NBA, but, you know, basically every player I played with in Florida from the time I got there played in the NBA, um, they just were about the right thing. Has the statute of limitations passed on Joakim Noah freshman year stories? <laughs> like Joe is my roommate on the road. We had a lot of fun. Joe is just the best, man. What what you see is what you get. The most genuinely good person. I'm still very close with him. Um, excited that he was able to get on with the with the Clippers, and he's obviously supporting those guys from the bench right now. But he's just the best. You know what? <laughs> I, I can't say a negative word about Joe. He, he's a close friend of mine. I'll be close friends with him forever. And, um, but I, I don't know that the statute of limitations on those things are ever going to uh, come up. I think it's like, <laughs> you know, first, first, first degree murder. Those have to go to the grave. With me. I'll, I'll fill you in after the show, Noah, because he's, he's definitely given me some of the stories. So I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. But <laughs> I, I, out, of, uh, out of Corey Brewer, Joe Kim Noah, and, uh, and Al Horford, when they first came into campus and you guys are first in, in scrimmages and, and playing, which one at that time did you think had the brightest future? 
man, you know, they all brought different things to the table. Joe Kim was a little bit slower along. I think probably Al or Corey. Corey was so athletic and so explosive defensively that he immediately felt his impact in every practice. You know, we tracked deflections and those kind of things. And the year before, the first two years, you know, I always led the team in deflections, not because of my athleticism, but because I was smart enough and I took charges. And Corey came in and just was deflecting every ball and taking charges and getting offensive rebounds. So you felt him every single day. And then Al, I think Al ended up starting a bunch for us that year, um, if I remember correctly, at center. Um, so him as well. And, and Joe Kim just, you know, he took a little bit more time to come along. But I think Joe was certainly the leader of that group. And you saw that the following two years. The, the collection of talent is spectacular. But what was even going all the way back to when you're playing in Philly? What was the game in which you were a part of that had the highest level of collection of talent that you can remember? Man, the highest collection of talent. Um, just talking about, um, man. Like where the, the, ten, played... the, ten guy, the 10 guys on the floor, it could have been a, a Sunny Hill game, it could have been an AU game, it could have been a high school game, it could have been a college game. Yeah, I think we, we went out, I played the Philly Elite AU team, and we went out to L.A. one summer with my guy, Latell Vaughn, who was our coach. And we had Hakeem Warwick on the team. And um, our team was just stacked. I think we had Maurice Rice and Beatty, my boy from St. John Newman. And we went out and we played against Tyson Chandler's team, um, their Compton AU team. And they had D'Angelo Collins, who was another seven-footer. And I just remember, like, some of those games we played AU-wise, um, it was just insane. And then I, I, went to, I ended up playing with the Raleigh Heat, and it was me, Shavlik Randolph, J.J. Reddick, Juan Robinson, Michael Thompson, and we're playing against Raymond Felton and all these guys. So I, I was very fortunate to always be around really good players. And, um, yeah, you know, from the time I was very young, my dad would take me down to Sunny Hill and play in all these different leagues. I'm blanking on the other name of the league down there. Um, and I, he would take me to watch Simon Gratz. And I was, I was just fortunate. I was always around really good players. And that's how I got good because I was always the worst player. And, you know, eventually I got tired of being the worst and I worked my ass off and I got better. But um, I was so fortunate to play with so many good players. And Philly had so much talent back then. You mentioned some of them already, Sean Singletary and um, Kyle Lowry. And I played with all these guys. So it was a lot of fun and we had a lot of battles. In is, it, is it hard to believe seeing – Kyle Lowry and, and the conversations now is Kyle Lowry, a hall of famer. And after winning a title last year, here's the guy that you saw playing growing up in Philly. And then, you know, fortunately that was your final college game when, when lost to them, when, uh, against Villanova in the NCAA tournament, is it wild for you seeing his name in that type of conversation now? I love it. I mean, Kyle's just the best. We both trained at impact my whole career. So when our seasons were over, we would be out there every day working out together. He was such a competitor. We had some real good battles. And he's just an amazing player, an amazing teammate. Talk about a guy who's about the right thing. Doesn't care about numbers, just about winning. And um, I was so happy for him last summer. And it's really exciting. You know, it's, it's proud. I'm proud to have played with him. Proud to call him, you know, another Philly guy who's, who's done that. And I think he should be a Hall of Fame. I think he's going to play another five years. Because he just, I think he's going to play until they tell him he can't anymore. And I think at the end of the day, you're going to look at his numbers and you're going to be like, wow. We've got all sorts of things going on in our lives right now. And there's a few less things in New Zealand to worry about than we have to worry about here. But just make sure that 
ordering food and eating isn't one of those. You want Chinese? Great. Want pizza? Great. Want a burrito? Great. There's something for everyone on DoorDash, and you can eat and nourish yourself while supporting the restaurants in your community safely. It's the app that brings you the food that you're craving right now right to your door. So right now, if you open the DoorDash app, you can choose whatever you want to eat, and then your food is left safely outside your door with new contactless delivery drop-off settings. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off and no delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter code LOCKEDONNBA. $5 off and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter the code LOCKEDONNBA. So many of your favorite local restaurants, plenty of national chains. Don't forget, LOCKEDONNBA, L-O-C-K-E-D-O-N-N-B-A for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. On the on the Florida thing, before we move on, I'm so curious now. You mentioned Billy Donovan coaching at OKC now. You got a chance to to be with him when he was in the midst of his run, before he had his titles, and and people knew, still knew him as Billy the Kid, the guy that, that had the great career at Providence and was an up-and-coming coach. What is it about his coaching style and, and what he does on a daily basis that just brings out the, the absolute best in, in players and, and, and perimeter players especially? I think it's two things. Well, three things. One, like you said, he was a player, and he was a player that, um, you know, growing up, I worked, I worked with the former strength and conditioning coach of Providence, a guy named Greg McCready, and he always used to tell me, you're just like Billy Donovan, and, you know, because I was a scrappy, and I had to play hard, and I had to work harder, and I didn't even know who Billy Donovan was at that time, but I think being a former player and a guy who really had to work for everything he got, um, I think that was a big part of it. The second thing was, from a basketball IQ standpoint and just knowing the game and X's and O's, I've never been around anyone like Billy Donovan. He's just incredible. He could sit there and draw you up a play and tell you exactly what the defense was going to do, and they're going to overplay here, and you're going to make one extra pass, and you're going to get this shot, and it would happen every time. And then third was he really cared about you. And, um, you know, there was, a, there was a real genuine level of love and care that he gave all his players that made you want to go out and run through a brick wall. And um, I think you saw that. Like, the, the relationship he has all the way from guys, like, that first started, Udonis Haslam, Teddy Dupay, Brett Nelson, Udonis, um, Mike Miller, all the way through my generation, guys who we didn't have as much success. You know, we didn't go to the finals or win anything, but we all loved Philly, and we all cherished those times. You know, when I catch up with guys from my era, you know, we're just so grateful that we had those times at Florida with Billy and – um, and then obviously, you know, he had so much success after we left as well with championships and the final fours. And I think you're seeing that, you know, KC, I mean, they overachieved this year and um, he's just great. He's just a great guy, a great man. And, um, you know, I, I take such pride in being able to say that I played for Billy Donovan. When you, when you say he, he showed you guys love, like a lot of players talk about their coaches as, as doing that or, you know, they were there for me in this moment or that. But it seems like when you talk about Billy Donovan, it's even on another level separate from that. So what's so what does that actually look like that he does to show you that kind of compassion or that he's just a very authentic person, not just a great coach? Yeah, I think it's two things. One, you know, he like you said, he was always there for you. You know, he had a good feel for 
if you were down or you're struggling, he'd invite you over to the house, and him and Mrs. Donovan would cook you dinner and you'd play with the kids, and that would make you feel like you're home a little bit. And we'd always have the whole team over for the holidays. So he did all those things that I think most really good, good coaches do. But he just he put the time in. You know, I think you can't bullshit players. And if you see that a guy is just barking at you, telling you do this, do that, but they're not putting time in, it's very easy to just tune them out. And with Billy and the whole coaching staff, they put the time in. They worked harder than us. You know, they were in there the longest, and they stayed all night. And you could see that they knew every play and every scout. And when you see that the coaching staff is putting that much time in and they care so much about winning, it's infectious. Um, so I think that's a big part of it. It's just they they really cared, uh, you know, not just about you as an individual, not just about team, but they cared about what they were doing, and they, they put the time in, and you can't bullshit that. What was the most joyous post-game celebration that you had with Billy Donovan and, and the rest of those Florida guys? It was We had a really good week. You know, the week um, before it all ended, you know, my career ended. We beat Kentucky at home. We were down mm-hmm. four with like a minute left, and I hit a bomb three from like the gator head. And then Anthony Robeson made two free throws with like a couple seconds left, and we ended up winning. And that was the first time we beat Kentucky in my whole career. I think we were 0-7 or 0-6 by that time. They had beat us in the SEC championship the year before. And then the following weekend, we, we won the SEC championship, and we beat them, Blondo and those guys. And, um, man, that was a lot of fun. It was just – it was like relief, and um, it was like happy tears. And I remember hugging Coach Donovan, and he has that infectious smile. They're like, I'm smiling now thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And um, that was a lot of fun. Adam and I were joking earlier this week on on the podcast that you're continuing our run of floppy haired white guys that we've spoken to. So like Adam Morrison and Dan oh, Dickow and Dan okay. Dickow, fair enough, fair enough. Cher- Cherokee Parks. Yeah, it's uh, a good list. It's a good. Yeah, list. it is a good it's, list. It's, yeah, it's all all NBA guys. So what what was the the most outrageous thing you heard from a visiting fan at Florida? Am I allowed to, like, I know I've already yeah. said shit. Oh, yeah. Allowed to more say on whatever there? you want. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, first of all, I have to think that I may be second team all decade Philly. I think I'm first team all hair uh, ever. Oh, <laughs> clearly. White guy college basketball with the headband. <laughs> but um, the most outrageous thing, um, I mean, I heard it all. The first time I played at Rupp Arena, um, the whole, whenever 30,000 were chanting, fuck you, Walsh, and they were chanting, Walsh is gay. I got Walsh is gay everywhere I went. Um and then I played at Tennessee my sophomore year, I believe. Maybe it was junior year. Sophomore, junior year. And my girlfriend at the time was a Playboy Playmate. And they had handed out flyers of my girlfriend naked with the, on her upper body, Hey Walsh, and on her lower body, Go Vols. And they handed out like a thousand of them to the student section. They were all holding them up and throwing paper airplanes down to the court. Um, I remember I hit a half-court buzzer beater. Uh, at the end of the first half, to uh, I had like 15 in the first half, and I just gave it to the student section big time. We ended up losing though, so I got in some trouble for that. How did you embrace it immediately? Oh, I loved it, and I loved it. I mean, it was, it was that was like heaven for me. Um, and I got it all the way back to high school. You know, we played in the interact, and um, we never lost a game in the interact. My my last three seasons. And, you know, I was the villain of the interact. And um, so I was, I was used to it, not on that level. Um, I remember we played at Maryland my freshman year when they had Juan Dixon and this big-time team through Nicholas. And 
Um, we beat them on the road, and I made, I think, like six free throws in the last minute to ice the game, maybe five or six. And they were chanting my sister's name because I was supposed to go to Maryland and my mom's name. And, like, there was my all my buddies came, and there was police surrounding my friends. So I went through a lot of it, but I loved it. I mean, that, that got me going. And um, that's the thing I think I miss the most is going on the road and being hated and giving it to the road crowd. Um, you know, that, I think that's what I miss most about playing is just I love being the bad guy. You seem to just enjoy it and rise to another level where so many other guys just, just seem to crumble under those circumstances. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's because my older brother tortured me growing up. And my, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know, having an older brother who's 12 years older than me and, you know, my dad always toughened me. I was always, you know, my dad coached baseball growing up and um, he was no nonsense. And I was always around, like, the older guys. Um, yeah, I, I really don't know. I, I think it was partially because I would always go play in, like, the – Sunny Hill League when I was, you know, really young and the only white guy down there. And I played in like the Philly Pro-Am League when I was freshman in high school, just getting beat up. So I think I was just used to kind of, I don't know if it was being the underdog or, um, yeah, I don't know exactly how to put it, but for me, that stuff always came natural. Like there was never an environment I ever walked in and was like, oh man, like these guys are really being mean. Um, you know, I love giving it back to them as much as possible. You know, and then, you know, you have to be able to pack it up. Like I said, we lost that Tennessee game when I was giving it to the crowd. And then you have to wear it with the coaching staff. And you have to, you know, you have to, you're going to take the last shot because you're going to give it to the crowd. you got to go out there and win. And I always felt confident enough in myself to, to do that. But, um, yeah, I really don't know. I, like I said, I loved it. The, the crazier the environment, the better for me. I never really understood, uh, you know, home court advantage because I liked playing on the road. You were certainly the underdog with the Miami Heat and, and making that team after going undrafted, and that story has been chronicled. But you're an underdog, make the team. Can you take us through the all the details of that heat conditioning test? Oh, man. I'm trying to think. I, yeah, the, the year, my rookie year, because I went back in 2009 and had to pass another crazy conditioning test, but it had, it had mellowed some. The one in 2005 was, first of all, I signed there in July, and then I reported, like, right after. So I was there August, September, October before we got started, you know, two full months. And you'd, you'd practice five days a week. And on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, you would do weights, conditioning, uh, individual, and pickups. You're basically doing, like, four workouts. Wednesdays, I think, was a little bit less. Um, but in order to pass the conditioning test, in the heat gym, you have the, the practice gym, you have a full court and then a half court behind it. And you'd have to run wall to wall seven times in under, I don't know, I forget what it was, a minute and a half maybe. And you had to do it seven times, but you could bank time. So if you banked and you had like a minute in between, if you banked, you know, 12 seconds, the first one, 12, the second, 12, if you banked a certain amount over the first five, you only had to do five. And the first time I tried to do it, I missed, like, the being able to bank it, like, through five by, like, one second. And then you're just toast. So then I failed the conditioning test. So then you have to come back the next day. And, you know, you have, I think, it's like they they start doing it three days before camp. You have those three days to do it. I I passed it the second day. But if you don't pass by the third day, you can't start training camp and you just start getting fined. So for me, a guy who was on minimum salary, I had a lot of motivation to get that shit done. That is bananas. Does does uh, do the bigs have the same restrictions? I mean, is, is Shaq running these with you? 
So I think Shaq did it just because, you know, Pat Riley was like, yeah, I, I think it was like more of a show. I know Shaq didn't do it more than once. And the bigs <laughs> and guards at different times. So it was like okay. point guards at a certain time, wings, and then fours and fives. So um, same with the body fat testing. You know, the guards had to be under 6% and bigs under 10. Um, and that was the same thing. They gave you a weight. When I got there in August, they gave me a weight and a body fat that I had to be on the opening day of training camp. And if you miss it, you can't start training camp and you get fined every day. Um, so, you know, I had, I had to balance my, my partying and my pizza <laughs> with my eating healthy enough to, to be able to, to get through camp. Right. And you're talking about the fans giving you all sorts of shit on the road during college. Now you're playing against and with Gary Payton. And he's talking. Had you had you ever experienced anything like Gary Payton talking? No, I mean Gary Payton was a nasty motherfucker, man. He um, he was just cold blooded. He's at the end of his career, and I'm a you know a young rookie and good guy, a good guy. But um, yeah, he he took no mercy at all, and you could see why he's a Hall of Famer. He was ruthless. He's a glove. Um, you know, I, I still cannot believe that. At one point in my life, I was on a roster with Gary Payton, Steele Neal, and Alonzo Mourning, and Dwayne Wade, and Antoine Walker, and and Jason Williams. It's just so banana land to me. Um, It's like, oh, yeah, there's Matt Walsh on that roster. Like, what are we talking about here? Um, So it's pretty cool. At some point, I think my son is going to really think it's cool. Matt, I don't think I've ever asked you this. Do you have a ring? (laughs) You know, if we were in person, I would give you the same answer that I give everyone who asked me in person. I said, if I had a fucking ring, I'd have the ring on right now. Yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't, well, that's the thing. I'm I not seeing you video-wise. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, I don't have a ring. Um, you know, all that stuff's determined by Pat Riley at the end of the year. And in fairness, I mean, I played two games. I was with the club for four or five months. Would I love the ring? Yeah, of course. I think probably, you know, if you play two games, you don't get a ring. Fair enough. Do, do you have anything from that first game against Memphis? No, you know, I'd never even seen like the highlight or anything. Um, yeah, I don't have much to be honest from my heat days. You know, when you when you get cut and you're 21 or 22, and you have the belief that I did, I just thought for sure, like, okay, well, I'm going to be either back with them or I'm going to be with another team. So you're not like thinking, oh, I better, you know, steal one of Shaq's shoes for to have on my wall someday or like <laughs> get pictures with guys. You know, I don't have, I don't have pictures of any of those guys i don't have i don't really have much to show for it to be honest with you what was when when you have that meeting matt what is what does that look like when it's the the cut meeting you know so i got cut from them twice like i said in 2005 and 2009 in 2009 i was only there for training camp Bo called me in um i had just got taped for practice we were getting ready to go on like a european uh preseason tour and he was like yeah it's just like you know you think it's not going to work this time i was like okay cool i had a great relationship with spo i, I understood i kind of knew those comments the first one i kind of knew was coming too because i'm watching we're playing a home game 10 games into the season whatever it was and jason williams hurts his knee and at the time we only had two point guards in the roster jay will and gary Payton, two older guys um and i looked up my agent time was jason levian and I looked up at him and like mouthed, I'm fucked <laughs> because I knew it was, you know, it was me. I'm, I'm at the end of the bench. It's 14th, 15th guy. It's me or Earl, uh, 
Barron? What's his name? I'm blanking. Earl Barron. Earl Barron. Um, yeah, Earl Barron is a seven-footer, so I, I know that I'm probably in trouble. Um, so I kind of knew it was coming, and then, you know, within a few days, they signed another point guard. So I kind of knew it was coming. Pat Riley called me in the office, was very complimentary, said, you know, I believe you're an NBA player. Uh, we want to stay in touch, blah, blah, blah. And um, kind of it. You just get your stuff, and and that's it. All right, then you have that the decorated career overseas. And I want, we want to get into what's going on in, in New Zealand present day and then just going back to R.J. Hampton and, and the future of, of the Breakers and, and the NBL. But in, in Europe, I've always heard stories about guys having to either fight for their paychecks or pick up their paycheck in the back of some shady deli. Did you ever have any experiences like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I played in Europe nine years. I got paid all my money two times. Um, oh. The EuroLeague team, Germany, Bamberg, and then, believe it or not, a team in the Ukraine, Azadmash, who that was very much, you'd go in this, you know, the team president's office and you'd ask you how much Ukrainian money, Griezmann, you want, how much U.S., and then how much he wanted to wire, and they'd open a safe and give you whatever you wanted. Crazy money there. Um, but, yeah, you never, you always had to fight for everything. Your money... There's plenty of times where I would text the team GM and say, hey, just letting you know I'm not coming to practice. Uh, my Wi-Fi has been off for a week. You guys can go fuck yourself. Um, you know, once my Wi-Fi is fixed, once my Wi-Fi is fixed, you know, I'll come back to practice. And then all of a sudden your Wi-Fi turns back on. Um, so it's just all kinds of nonsense you always had to deal with, not just the money. Matt, how many languages can you curse in? <laughs> I certainly can curse in Greek because that's all you hear. Hey, Malaka. Hi, hey, Malaka. Um, I can say some, you know, Serbian. So, I, you know, probably if I if I think about it, I'm probably more well versed in cursing in all the languages that I've played in those countries than anything else. Sadly, got to know Casey Jacobson pretty well. I know you play with Casey overseas. Everybody always talks so highly of you, um, you know, in in your time there. And usually they say the same thing. I didn't like Matt Walsh before. I didn't think I'd like him. And then I end up playing with the guy and I love the guy. So it's, it's funny. I'm sure you hear that throughout your entire uh, post-career. But, but I am curious now, Matt, like, so you and I had spoken some before you, you got into this, into this business arrangement where you, where you um, own the New Zealand Breakers. How, how did this all come up for you? How did everything start where you said that you wanted to be involved in owning a, a team from New Zealand? Yeah, I mean, I say this all the time, to, you know, because the first question I get here, too, is how did you end up here? And I'm like, well, I can assure you I never set out to own a team in New Zealand. That was never part of the plan. Um, you know, I retired in 2015. It's relatively young. I retired at 31 or 32. Um, I just come off, like, probably one of my best years. I led the Turkish League in scoring. Um, I had some options, but I just got tired of, like, the same routine, like I'm, like I'm talking about the same fighting about my internet and the same conversations on the team bus. And um, I talked about Jason Levian, who was my agent back in 2005. And Jason's gone on to help put the deal together for the Philadelphia 76ers. And then he was the president managing owner of the Memphis Grizzlies. Um, brilliant. The most brilliant business executive in my mind that there is. Um, and um, he gave, he, at that time he was, he was the managing owner of DC United he was getting ready to purchase Swansea City. It was a Premier League team. And 
um, you know, he gave me a window into what he was doing as sports executive ownership, and I absolutely loved it. I invested in both of those businesses, and he gave me the opportunity to learn from him. And, um, you know, his kind of right-hand man, Sam Porter, um, who's also another brilliant sports executive, um, they gave me basically the opportunity to learn from them and to see the inside of that sports executive ownership business, and I absolutely loved it. And I decided that this is what I wanted to do. I was fortunate that during my playing career, I was smart with my money, and I, I wasn't in a position where I had to take a job. And then Jonathan Gavoni, who does all the draft stuff for ESPN, mm-hmm. who's a mutual friend of mine and who was doing some work as a consultant for the Breakers, called me and said, hey, I think you should take a look at the New Zealand Breakers. Um, you know, the owners, the Blackwells, these amazing people are looking to sell, um, and I think you can get a really good deal, and I think the league is getting ready to explode in this connection with the NBA. And I didn't know much about it, but – I trust Jonathan and I really value his opinion. And um, I ended up getting connected with the owners and taking a visit here and just fell in love with the country of New Zealand. I mean, it's just, it's amazing here. I was blown away by the facilities and the people, how welcoming they were. And then as I researched the league, I saw that this league is English speaking, short season connection with the NBA, really high level players. And I saw a really big business opportunity as well. Um, and I thought that I could add value to not only the team here, but also the league. And, you know, since I bought the team, now there's four other American owners in the league. Um, Brian Colangelo, the most recent with the Hawks. Um, so it's been exciting to watch the growth, to help with that growth, to play three NBA preseason games. You know, I got a chance for my team to play against Billy Donovan in the preseason, which is just another one of those things that's like bananas for me. Um, so it's been an awesome journey. It's something I didn't anticipate. Um, I feel so lucky. You know, we also ended up in the place that's handled coronavirus better than anywhere else in the entire world. Um, so I feel super lucky to be here. It was not part of the plan. Um, it just kind of kind of happened, and it wouldn't have happened without the support of guys like Jason Levian and Sam Porter and, um, you know, my family and them be willing to move here. So I feel very fortunate to have ended up owning this, you know, awesome team. Is, is the basketball better than the EuroLeague when you were playing in it? The basketball itself, no. I mean, there's no there's no way around it. The EuroLeague, in terms of talent, is the second best league in the world. But what I always say about our league as a whole, collectively, I believe our league, all in all, is the second best league in the world. And what I mean by that is the production of the game looks like NBA games. We've got a connection to the NBA. We're... Mm-hmm signing higher and higher level imports. It's English speaking. Um, you live in paradise. So I think collectively we're the second best league in the world. But you look at some of the teams like CSKA Moscow, Panathinaikos, Olympiacos, these teams, Barcelona, they have 40 million euro budgets. You know, these teams legitimately could play in the NBA. Um, you know, us, we are very talented. The talent's getting better. All of our guys are national team players. Um, play with, you know, grew up playing with Steven Adams. A lot of the Aussie boomers that are one of the top five teams in the world play in our league. Um, so the league's getting better. I mean, the imports, we had Scotty Hobson last year, who um, NBA player, Lamar Patterson. These guys are all borderline NBA players, so it's certainly getting better. Um, but I think just in terms of up and down talent, we're, we're not quite at the Euro League. But the way I always put it is, you know, if you put our team in the ACB in Spain or in Greece or in – you know, any league in the world, really, domestic league, we're going to finish in the top five. You know, we may not finish ahead of Barcelona in Spain or Madrid, but we're going to be right behind them, and we're going to beat most most of the average teams around the world. Um, we're going to beat them.
before we get into the RJ Hampton stuff, Matt, because I'm super curious about that. But just when you when you first took the job and here you take ownership of this team, what were you know, usually a coach looks at it and says, all right, here's my plan for my first hundred days. What was your initial outlook? What were you trying to accomplish when you first uh, jumped on board? Yeah, you know, I think the, the first two things that I wanted to do were to get the staff right, um, basketball and office, which I failed at miserably at, at the start. That's just the reality. It took a year to get the right guy, Dan Schmier, who's now best coach in our league, just an amazing coach. And two is I wanted to get our game night and our entertainment right, which took a full year to get right, too. You know, I looked at what we had as a product when I first bought the team. And the Blackwells did an incredible job, but the product was very dated. It was almost like watching an NBA game 25 years ago. And I really felt like we could enhance the entertainment product to make it the go-to event here in Auckland. Um, and we've done that. I mean, our come to one of our home games here, which I have to get you over here once travel's allowed again. Um, it's, like, it's like being at an NBA arena, and it's amazing. And, um, you know, along those same lines, I learned very quickly, it's the first time I was managing and running my own business, that the people around you determine your success. And you have to have really great people around you. And if you have people who are detractors and people who are not, you know, as Dan Shamir, our coach says, partners, um, it makes it really, really hard. And it took, you know, over a year to get that right. And once we've done that now, um, it's been a lot of fun. And we've got a great staff and we've got great game night. So th those were the two focuses that I had early on. And admittedly, I made some mistakes and I think we're in a really good place now. It's funny you say, got to get you over here. So uh, my brother lives in, in Geneva, Switzerland. He's lived there for almost 20 years. And, and he says that he's like, oh, yeah, come on over whenever you want. He says that to, you know, friends, family, whoever. And I'm interested that, you know, you, you'll say that to people. How many actually take you up on it and say, hey, I'm going to come this date. I've got my ticket. What do I need to know? Yeah, I'll be honest. Before COVID, it was a lot of people. It was really oh, great. That's you know, awesome. We love having visitors. Yeah, we love having visitors. I think New Zealand's one of those bucket list destinations. Yeah, it's really far. You know, from the West Coast, it's not so bad because you just hop on a plane at 9 p.m. and then you wake up in the morning and you're here. Um, from the East Coast, it's a little harder. But you know, we have a ton of people, family, friends, come visit us just because you know this is one of those places that you never dream of going. And if you have a reason, I think it makes it it makes it you know, something more realistic. I, I compare it to like when I played in Italy or France, one of the like really cool places, we had people all the time. And then I would go play in like, you know, Charlois, Belgium um, or the Ukraine and nobody's knocking yeah. down your door. So, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, we, we had, we were fortunate that we had a lot of people come visit and uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully we can get back to some normalcy here soon because um, miss having, you know, my mom come visit and, um, family friends so yeah and we miss having you stateside but but matt you obviously the the main attraction for people in the states as far as the nz breakers went this year was was rj hampton uh you know future lottery pick when did you first hear of rj hampton man so i'm trying to think now so we ended up signing rj in may of 2019 and we started the conversation with rj's dad rod and his mom marquita way back in october and november of 2018 um so it was a long process and i you know i equated to it was like recruiting you know he was getting recruited by bill self at kansas and coach k at duke and he was getting recruited by matt walsh at the breakers and um the big kind of turning point for us was 
uh, you know, I said it to him and his family early on. I was like, you know, if you're going to go the college route, you're never going to hear me say like, you should definitely come here. This is better for you. Forget college. Like I told them, I was like, I had the most amazing experience at Florida with Billy Donovan. Like if you go to college, you're going to have a great time. And I think that you'll probably accomplish, you know, your goals. But I said, if you're looking to be a pro and you know, you want to take that next step and you want to develop to devote all your time to being a pro learning, being around real like high level pros and competing against men, then I felt very comfortable saying you're not going to find a better situation anywhere in the world than here for all the reasons I talked about. It's a shorter season. We live in paradise. We run a pro style system. Uh, You know, there's going to be no nonsense uh, in terms of payment and everything with me running the show here. We've got NBA connections. We're going to play NBA preseason games. So I felt very confident telling him that. And once he decided that he wanted to be a pro, I don't think that there was anyone else ever in the picture. It was, it was, it was an easy decision for him. How much was it a strategy of yours to go out and get a top tier high school player and bring them overseas because of the NBA rules, the NCAA rules, you know, that guys to enter the draft have to at least be one year removed from their high school graduating class and all, all those other restrictions. How much was it a strategy of yours? Let's go try to get one of the top high school players in America to join our team. Oh, it was a huge part of our strategy, you know, from day one, as soon as, um, you know, we bought the team, we set our sights on getting a high-level next star. Uh, we were the first team in the league to get someone of RJ's caliber. The year before, they had Brian Bowen from the Pacers. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously, LaMelo ended up following RJ. But it was a huge part of our business. I mean, we knew that um, getting a kid like RJ, who had a massive following in the stage, who was young and good-looking and super talented and played above the rim, we knew that that was going to lower our fan base demographics. We knew that that was going to attract attention. We knew that that was going to do all the things business-wise that would really help us. Um, so that's uh, – it, it was a huge part of it. We were, you know, very excited. Obviously, we got some great run in U.S. media when we made the announcement on ESPN on Get Up. Um, and, it's you know, it's still part of our strategy moving forward, especially with what's going on with the NCAA now um, in terms of the season possibly being canceled and what that's going to look like. So we're in talks with some very high-level guys, and I think you're going to see some – top 10 top 15 picks in our league this year for sure how does the the g league pathway program impact how you get guys yeah you know i don't think it's going to impact us specifically too much because i always feel like we're going to have the ability to sell a player on the fact that this is the best place for them as an individual to develop i think the g league's a great thing and what you know the way i put it is there's never been a better time to be a really high or highly talented young player um, these guys have so many options. They can go to the G League. They can go to school. They can come here. So, you know, I believe that we're going to still be able to get some players um, because I don't think every player is going to want to go and compete in the G League against the other guy who wants to be the number one pick uh, every day for a year. And I don't think that, um, you know, that's going to be the most attractive for, for those guys. So, you know, the conversations we're having, I feel pretty good that we're going to be able to get um, a high-level guy every year, you know, until they change it to one and done, and then our strategy will change. And, you know, maybe then we bring guys over who have a year of experience in college who want to do a year pro before they go to the NBA. There's a lot of different pathways. So it certainly changes things, but I don't think it's going to be all that impactful for us in the short term. How, how much do you need and, and will rely on and lean on RJ now to recruit guys for you? Yeah, I mean, RJ's great. His family's great. I think they had a really good experience here. Um, 
anything we ask in terms of recruitment or, you know, anytime you ask him anything, he's always very positive and upbeat about his experience here. So um, they're really good people. RJ's a really good kid. And, um, you know, we certainly put people in contact. To, you know, we, we encourage people to reach out to Rod and Marquita and RJ um, because I think that's the best way. You know, that's our best recruiting tool. What was the, the biggest adjustment? And, again, you guys were playing NBA teams. You mentioned it. Obviously, OKC, you guys played the Grizzlies. What was the biggest adjustment for R.J. Hampton early on to go from the high school level to the pro level? I think, um, you know, playing in an organized system, like we have a pro system, and just playing against grown men. I mean, um, you have to remember, R.J. wasn't just um, coming here after being a high school senior. He reclassified. So he gave up his senior year to come here. Um, so you have this, you know, young man who just turned 18 coming here. And I think for him, uh, you look at the point guards in our league, and they're all former NBA players or borderline NBA players. It's Jerome Randall, Castleware, Scott Machado, um, John Roberson. These are all guys who are very high level. And you just get – there's no night where you, where you get a break. Every night, you mellow tremble. You're playing against a guy who wants to prove himself. And that's really tough. So I think it was just more of – no matter what, there was going to be a learning curve about, um, you know, playing against grown men every day and what the wear and tear on your body and how you have to take care of yourself. And I think that was one of the reasons why he wanted to come here. He could speak, speak to it better than me, but he wanted to learn other things so that when he goes to the NBA, you know, there's no real learning curve. You got a chance to witness LaMelo Ball, as you said, firsthand there. Um, and I actually, I guess I want your, your breakdowns of both. So, you're you're going to put on your NBA GM hat right now, or at least let's call it actually another direction. Let's say your your uh, NBA scout hat. Um, give me an evaluation for me on both your guy Hampton and then Lamelo Ball. Yeah, I'll start with Lamelo because I, I saw him less special, special talent. NBA size, he's six seven or so. Um, I think he's going to continue to get more athletic as he grows into his body. Um, he might even grow some more special, special vision. Um, the kind of vision, uh, you know, I think like his brother, but even more so, um, you know, vision you just don't see. A feel for the game, you just can't speed him up. I would compare, and I'm not comparing him as a player to Luca, but the way you watch Luca, and when you watch Luca as an 18 year old in Madrid, no matter what you did, you couldn't speed him up. It was the same with Lamelo. Um, he just always looked in control and incredible feel for the game. I think he's going to have a very long NBA career. Much like his brother, he's going to have to work on his shot. Funny release, um, very inconsistent. But um, he's got the athleticism, the size to guard, you know, the modern NBA. He can guard one through four and switch. And he's got that special vision, rebounds his position. Um, I think he's going to be in the NBA for 15 years. Um, RJ, super explosive athlete. Um, you know, the kind of athleticism that just you don't see. I know some people are comparing him to Russell Westbrook. I don't know that anyone is like Russell Westbrook, but RJ jumps off both foot, both feet equally well, right and left, jumps off two feet as well. Um, better vision than you than we thought when he came. You know, we didn't know what kind of feel he'd have for the game. Very good passer. Um, I think shot consistency is another thing, but he's got the good he's got good form, he's got the good bones for shot. Um and I think RJ, again, I think in the modern NBA with the court so open, I think, you know, our league, we don't have three uh, defensive three seconds, so the, la the, the lane can't, tends to get clogged. I think in the NBA, 
with the court open, he's going to be able to get out and get easy buckets, get easy buckets for his teammates. And he's another, I think he's going to have a very long, successful NBA career. And I think both those guys deserve to be top 10 picks. So, you know, it's certainly going to be an exciting time for the breakers in the NBL, you know, a month from now. Yeah, that's for sure. And, and it's, it's free publicity whenever they're the highlights of RJ Hampton in that breakers uniform. And, and it's up there on, on draft night and everyone is seeing and now researching more and more about the breakers. It's, all, all good things for the league and, and for the team itself. A few quick hits before we wrap it up, Matt. When you visited the Playboy Mansion, what's this scene <laughs> yeah. that you still look back at and you're like, holy shit, I can't believe I was there for that? Oh, man. Um, so I was lucky, I guess if that's how you put it, that I got to go there multiple times. So I got to go on like the Sunday, so I'll get into the parties in a minute, but I also got to go on like the Sunday family dinner nights where it was Hugh. And the first time I went, I think you had like seven girlfriends. So you're sitting at a big round table at the Playboy Mansion and it's like Hugh and then it's Holly, his main one next to him. And then Madison to his right. And it kind of goes in the pecking order around the table. And then you're sitting there with these like legends of Hollywood, like these older guys who um, are friends of Hugh and you sit there and you have dinner with them and you're sitting at this table with maybe 15 people and then you go in and you watch a movie and I just remember being like Hugh Hefner is one of the like the legends right so I just yeah. remember being like one of the, another moment where I'm like what am I doing here like I'm the one who doesn't belong um, I've had a lot of those moments and then the mansion parties are just they're just crazy I mean they're lingerie parties they the women are walking around in lingerie and I'm in PJs and that was during like the entourage um, time. So it was just, you know, as a college kid or just coming out of college, you're watching entourage and you're just like, you're imagining that that's you and your buddies. Right. And then you go to the party and all the entourage guys are hanging out and you're seeing like, you know, and they even filmed some stuff there and you're seeing all those guys like Johnny drama and chase and Vinny chase. And, <laughs> and then you're seeing like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was always at the party. He's a friend of Hugh Hefner. So it was just such a wild team. Then you see like all the, the X game, like it was just like, I just walking around, you're just like, man, like this is probably as good as it's ever going to get. That is, that's <laughs> so crazy. Seeing the entourage ruin with Kareem. Yeah, I mean, just the weird dream. There, and, it's just... and Noah, imagine how good Matt's stories were before he had kids. Like you can imagine, those are locked away though. I get um, it. I get it. And and I don't I I don't want to make the worst uh, virus segue of all time to go to another one, but I do. But I am curious. You mentioned at the beginning, Matt, that like you guys in New Zealand have handled COVID. I mean, now it'll be talked about in history books. Um, obviously you're not a doctor, but what has New Zealand gotten right? What did they get right from the beginning? Why, why did it work there? This ability to basically eradicate or nearly eradicate COVID in, in your entire country. Yeah. I mean, we're very lucky. Yeah. We're an Island nation here, 6 million people. So we had some things going for us that worked in our favor. But I think the amazing thing that the government, specifically Jacinda, did here was they took a hard stance early on that we're go they're going to protect their own and the New Zealanders and the New Zealand population, Kiwis and, uh, you know, the, the country here, that's going to take priority number one. And they took some really hard steps. I mean, they shut down everything, like basically right away with the intent on eliminating it. And it was just amazing. And I, but I think the thing that stood out the most to me was 
the people got behind it. Like, people social distanced. People didn't drive. Like, you didn't see a car on the road when we were in the first lockdown, you know, unless you were going to the supermarket. Um, people just did what they were asked to do, which is such a foreign concept in the States. And I don't think that there's, you know, any way that the States could have eliminated it because it's 300 and some million people in 50 different States. But um, the biggest thing was, you know, I was I was watching – in horror in some ways of like the college kids on spring break early on where they're just ignoring it and partying it. And here the government asked everyone to chill out and everyone just chilled out. And I think that's why we were able to do it. So I give most of the credit to, you know, the government taking, making some hard decisions and the people here just, um, you know, doing their part. And, you know, now we're, we're reaping the benefits, you know, since I've been able to go to concerts and sporting events and, you know, we can go out to restaurants without any fear of getting COVID. Um, so I, I feel very grateful. Yeah. Imagine everybody just following a set of rules or at least imagine having a leader just to present a set of rules. What a, what a world, what a world. Um, yeah. <laughs> last from from me on, on quick hits, you played for David Blatt when he got the Cavs job. Did you think he was going to win a title? Um, I, I knew he wasn't going to stick around long, and that's not a reflection on David at all. I was very fortunate to play for David and some of like the best coaches. And Our coach here, Dan Shamir, coached with David. We love David here. Um, but I think I may have done a podcast with you, Adam, and, and, and actually said that I thought they were going to win it once Ty Lue came on and that I didn't think David was going to last there just because – there's a perception among the NBA that, um, you know, there's a certain kind of way coaches come up and you're either a former player or you're an assistant in the NBA. And, you know, I think David in some ways couldn't get out of his own way. And I think like after the first, his first win, he was like, Oh, what are you talking about? I have 500 wins and NBA guys roll their eyes because, you know, they don't view wins outside of the NBA as, you know, impactful or meaningful. So um, I didn't think that, David was going to last there just because I didn't think the, the personalities and the, everything was going to match up. And it's nothing to do with his basketball acumen because he's a brilliant basketball mind. There's a now famous picture, at least to me, view on the golf course with Obama holding up an Obama breakers Jersey. Uh, what's the story behind the picture, Matt? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, Obama's been a breakers fan for like the last 15 years. So when he came here, he, he hunted me down and I had to get him a Jersey. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, Obama's a huge, uh, golfer. Obama's a huge golfer and I'm very fortunate that my business partners, the Blackwells are members of this incredible course. One of the top five courses in the world called Tara Edy here in New Zealand. And he was playing, Obama was playing with John Key and um, I'm very lucky to go up and be able to play at Tariti a bunch. They they allow me to go up there. And when Obama was coming, I organized it with Liz Blackwell. And we went up together and uh, had the jersey made along with some other stuff. Obama's obviously a huge basketball guy. So put together a whole package of Breakers basketball gear for him. And he was hitting on the range. And the pro up there, who's my buddy, uh, you know, introduced me. And I got to you know, I told him that Sean Marion, who's the Chicago guy, is one of my partners, and we spoke for a few minutes, and I ended up playing in the group behind him, which was really cool. Um, got, got to give him the jersey, give him some gear, and um, watch his helicopter land on the putting greens to arrive and, and, and take off from the putting green. So awesome. it was a very cool 
quite certainly another moment that uh, I was like, yeah, just me and Obama, my buddy Barry here. So uh, (laughs) one of us doesn't belong, doesn't belong up here. But um, yeah, President Obama, longtime Breakers fan. No, man, you keep, you you keep saying that you have these moments where you don't belong. When When you have enough of them, like you've had, you, you certainly do belong. You've put yourself in that position. Our final question since it's the Rejecting the Screen podcast, we ask all of our guests this, and we asked Sean Marion this, a a previous guest of the podcast, so it's not just floppy-haired white guys on the show, is (laughs) if you could choose one guy in a must-get-a-bucket situation to reject the screen, go ISO, who is it? Can't be Jordan, and for you, it's any guy that you have played with who has been a teammate of yours at any point during your career. And I can't say myself? No. No. Okay. Um, <laughs> if I can take myself, I'm taking myself. Man, let me think. Um, I mean, I probably just have to say Dwayne Wade, right? I mean, I got the chance mm-hmm. to play with Dwayne Wade. He was incredible. I'm trying to think. I, you know, I would say Dwayne Wade, certainly from my NBA days. I also played a short time with Vince Carter and Jason Kidd, but I guess – if the game's on the line and one-on-one, who, who do I want to take that shot? It's probably, it's probably um, Dwayne Wade. And, you know, I was very fortunate to play with a lot of really high-level guys in Europe, too. Um, but, you know, I was always the one in Europe taking the last shot. So, like I said, like, I'm, I'm, in my mind, I'm, I always want the last shot. But um, I, I would probably say Dwayne Wade. All right. Me so or Dwayne Wade. Dwayne... You know, it's a coin, it's a coin flip. You, know, it's you, coin you never flip. know who, who you'd give it to. It's coin flip, Matt or Dwayne Wade, and and once again, Jeff Curtin goes home disappointed. So, sorry, Jeff. Sorry, Jeff. Right, I, I was going to say Lee Melchione, a close third. Yeah. All right, and Matt, before we go, you did go to Germantown Academy, home of Bradley Cooper, but now you've got another – I know you weren't there at the same time, but now you've got another filmmaker in your life. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, most people, when they talk about GA, they talk about, you know, me or Bradley Cooper, who's the most famous, best looking. Um, again, probably another coin flip. But my, yeah, my dad, who's, uh, you know, written and produced movies in the past, um, produced, written, wrote and produced Snow Babies. It's got an incredible soundtrack. It's about the opioid epidemic, and it's been getting some really great reviews and the soundtrack's on iTunes. It comes out this month, September 27th, on Amazon and iTunes. So, Everyone check it out. I'm really proud of my dad. He's done a great job. And um, I think uh, I think you'll love the movie. So, guys, I, I can't really can't thank you enough for having me on. I had a lot of fun. Adam, every time you have me on, I get to relive some of these glory days. And it, it's a really good time. So thank you both. I enjoyed it. It's always great talking to you, brother. So when was the the first time that you met Matt or saw him play when you were on the high school basketball scene in Philly? Uh, I want to say it was his junior year. Um, I saw him a bunch his junior year. His, his high school was picking up so much steam that Mike Slattery was their other point guard. This whole crew of this junior class that was him, Ted Scooches, who went to Vanderbilt, and then uh, Lee Melchione, as you mentioned, went to Duke. Um, those guys were, you know, making national noise. And then when, when they were seniors, it was such a big deal. And I remember going over and getting to know Matt, covering a bunch of his games, and then went at one point did a feature on him. And, you know, we played, I want to say pig or horse together. Um, 
should have had him, but I was in dress clothes. If uh, we can bring it up next time that we that we <laughs> talk to Matt, but he's he's always just been such a great guy, and he's one of those guys that I mean, you remember no because you covered him in high school or, or saw him in high school rather. Um, yeah. But covering him in high school, and then and then certainly when he was in the SEC, and check out some of the stuff on YouTube, Matt Walsh, Florida, like fans just opposing fans hated this guy but he was so flashy so fun to watch like burst on the scene as a freshman dickie v loved the diaper dandy and all that i mean he was just matt had so much flair to his game and was so much fun as a player but just one of those guys that opponents just absolutely despised and he loved every minute of it like he talks about but such a good guy off the court so always so cool to uh to reconnect um yeah i always love talking to matt but I think he either told a story to you on a podcast at one point, or maybe it was Ryan Russillo or another podcast that I listened to that going into that first nationally televised game with his debut at Florida against Louisiana Tech, where he just lit him up, Dickie V kind of just yada yada Matt Walsh and was talking about everybody else. And then after the game, when he was talking with Dickie V, Dickie V saying, oh, you're a PT player, <laughs> diaper dandy, all this. And, and, and Matt wanted to say something to him, but like, and wanted to say, but where were you like three hours ago? <laughs> but he didn't. <laughs> That's exactly. Yeah. I'm just surprised he, he didn't, but uh, yeah, he's, he's such a good guy. And I'm so glad that he's having the success now. And it just, you know, it's weird. It's in a way Matt like symbolizes, I think everything that we, we sort of want to get out of these interviews. I mean, he's a guy you talk about touching the NBA in so many ways. I mean, his one of his ownership, his one of the guys in the ownership group right now with the breakers, he mentioned Sean Marion. Um, so the history there, the fact that Matt, you know, was in the NBA, he left school early to enter the NBA draft has the NBA ties from his, his college days. I mean, he played with David Lee too. It was, it was another big time NBA mm-hmm. player, obviously uh, the Billy Donovan connection. And then you look now, like the NBA connection that he's got with, with RJ Hampton, of course, Lamella Ball, other guys throughout the league, Scotty Hobson, he mentioned as, as a guy on his team. So it's really cool that, you know, Matt sort of, again, he, he symbolized what is we're all about, like finding people that have a unique connection to the league and can tell us just incredible stories about what they've been through and, and what the journey's kind of like. And it's so great that he continues to have these moments where he's thinking to himself, what, what am I doing here? But as I said, you put, you, know, you, put him, you put yourself in those positions by surrounding yourself with the right people and creating your own success. Yeah, I, he absolutely has done that. I mean, how many other people have been at a, have met Obama, have been at a, a Playboy Mansion party, have befriended Shaq, I mean, the uh, list goes hold on. on a second. That, hold on a second. That Venn diagram, I actually think would be pretty wide. People that have met, <laughs> met Obama. Well, if I kept going, if I well, kept no, going, maybe, I would have reached maybe, a point. Maybe it's maybe it was the have been to the Sunday family dinner at the mansion. Mm. Met Obama. Played with Shaq. Maybe that maybe because mm. that's a more that's a more exclusive club. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I was going to find something that would have knocked a bunch of people out. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. That got an FU chant at, in Lexington. How about that? that oh. Now we've narrowed that list. Who had, a, who had a, a girlfriend <laughs> naked photo printed out and had 
at Tennessee and had fans throwing paper airplanes of that photo onto the court. Today's episode brought to you by rockauto.com. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. Rockauto.com. Everything else on the Locked On Podcast Network, Locked On NBA, five days a week. Ben Golliver is in the bubble, Washington Post, co-host with David Locke, voice of the Utah Jazz, and host of Locked On Jazz every Thursday. Locked On Fantasy Hoops with Josh Floyd, five days a week. Hollinger and Duncan every Monday. And your team every single day. This podcast for all 30 teams every single day on the Locked On Podcast Network. We are on Instagram at rejecting underscore the underscore screen. Adam's on Twitter at Naismith Lives. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C-O-S-L-O-V. Coming next week on Going ISO, it'll be the first interview you will hear about Three Ring Circus from the New York Times best-selling author Jeff Perlman, Shaq, Kobe, Phil, Los Angeles Lakers. We recorded it in August, had to hold it until... September 17th. Trust us. You don't want to miss it. Adam, thanks, pal. You are the best.